Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, CardioNerds family. Dan Ambender here. This episode continues the CardioNerds Lipid Series, which is a comprehensive, all-you-need-to-know series led by co-chairs Dr. Rick Ferraro, cardiology fellow at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and Dr. Tommy Das, program director of the CardioNerds Academy and cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, and is produced in collaboration with the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is made possible by unrestricted support from Amarin. The curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds without external bias. Welcome, Cardio Nerds, to another great episode and our final one on triglycerides for this series. I'm your host, Rick Ferraro, and it's been an honor taking you through this greasy and fascinating world of triglycerides. I can't believe we're already on the sixth and last part of the current series. Really excited to be here today with my co-host, Cleveland Clinic Cardiology Fellow and Cardio Nerds Academy Program Director, Tommy Das. Rick, it's a privilege as always. We got a great episode en route for you guys today. We're so incredibly excited to be joined by Dr. Ming Jia cardiology fellow at Baylor College of Medicine and the fit lead for this discussion. Thank you for joining us and bringing your expertise, Ming. Thank you for having me, Tommy. It's great to be here. I'm very excited to learn a lot more about this topic. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our expert today, Dr. Michael Shapiro. Dr. Shapiro is the Fred M. Parrish Professor of Cardiology at Wake Forest University and a true leader in the field of cardiovascular prevention. He is also the director of the Center for Preventative Cardiology at Wake Forest Baptist Health, has published widely in the field of cardiac imaging and cardiovascular health. Dr. Shapiro, it's an honor to have this time with you. Welcome to Cardio Nerds. Well, guys, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the very kind invitation. Really looking forward to our conversation. Today, we're going to be discussing a very hot topic in preventative cardiology, icosapenethyl. For those who are not familiar with icosapenethyl, the name may sound pretty complicated at first. Some may dare say a little bit fishy. So before we take a deep dive into the science behind icosapenethyl, let's first define some terms so we all get our listeners up to speed here. Now, we discussed this in a prior episode with Dr. Taub, but for review, Dr. Shapiro, can you give us an overview of exactly what icosapenethyl is? Yeah, certainly. That's a great place to start. So icosapenethyl is a stable, highly purified ethyl ester of icosapentaenoic acid, or EPA for short. Most of your listeners will be familiar with EPA since it's one of the major omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids found in prescription fish oil formulations and supplements. Most fish oil products also contain another omega-3 called DHA. Specifically, one prescription fish oil product in most fish oil supplements contain a combination of varying degrees of EPA and DHA. Both EPA and DHA are effective at lowering triglycerides, but unfortunately this is not translated into consistent clinical benefits. Indeed, if we look at the trials with low-dose mixed omega-3 fatty acids, they really consistently failed to show cardiovascular benefit, along with failures using other agents such as spibrates and niacin. This has really added to the controversy about what role exists, if any, for triglyceride lowering in statin-treated high-risk patients. 
But new insights indicate specific differences among omega-3 fatty acids that may favor EPA over DHA with respect to plaque stabilization. In particular, EPA inhibits cholesterol crystal formation, it stabilizes membrane structure, reverses endothelial dysfunction, and produces sustained inhibition of lipoprotein and membrane lipid oxidations. In other words, there are many potential benefits of EPA with respect to cardiovascular disease. Now, more recent omega-3 fatty acid trials particularly reduce it in strength using different formulations have shed new insights into this debate. So I think we can start by focusing on reduce it for the moment. That trial, reduce it, enrolled about 8,000 participants with established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or diabetes. Of the population, roughly two-thirds had ASCVD and about one-third had diabetes. All participants were on statin therapy with controlled LDL cholesterol, but had residual elevations of triglycerides above 135 milligrams per deciliter and less than 500 milligrams per deciliter. As it turned out, if you look at the median triglyceride levels and reduce it, it was not very high. The median triglyceride level was about 216 milligrams per deciliter. Nonetheless, patients were randomized to either a high dose, 2 grams BID of icosapenethyl or placebo, and their primary composite endpoint was a 5-point mix, including cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, coronary revascularization, or unstable angina. And remarkably, at least to me, and uh, unexpectedly, there was a dramatic 25% relative risk reduction in the primary endpoint favoring icosapenethyl. Moreover, the baseline and on-treatment triglyceride levels did not modify the risk reduction associated with icosapenethyl. So highly purified, high-dose EPA reduced cardiovascular disease risk without any apparent relationship to triglyceride reduction. Wow, thank you for the great overview, Dr. Shapiro. So before we go further dwelling on reduce it and icosapenethyl, I do want to take us down memory lane a little bit here. Now, we all know ethyl omega-3 has been quite the rage for the past couple of years since the publication of Reduce It. I think it's easy to forget, especially for our younger listeners out there, that intensive research on marine-derived omega-3s, also known as fish oil, have been going on for quite some time now. So just to give you guys some perspective here, the first large cardiovascular outcome trial on omega-3s was the Jesse Prevencioni or Jesse P study, and it was published in The Lancet in 1999. That technically is in another millennia, and it's not including the preclinical and the animal studies on omega-3. Now, the Jealous study, which you guys probably have heard before, which was the first large cardiovascular outcome study on purified EPA, where a pentanoic acid was published in The Lancet in 2007. Now, guys, I like to watch movies, so I'll give you guys some movie titles that came out in 2007. These included No Country for Old Men, Into the Wild, Juno, and in my opinion, the best dance movie since Dirty Dancing, wait for it, Stump Yard. <laughs> That's a fantastic overview, Ming. And I have to say, I think it's the first time on the Cardinals podcast, Stop the Yard has made an appearance. So grateful for that overview. To keep things going with a historical perspective, even before the new approval by the FDA for ASCV risk reduction, icosapenethyl had been used for many years, actually, in the treatment of hypertriglyceridemia, particularly for patients with fasting triglycerides above 500. Is that right, Ming? That's right, Rick. So actually, I would like to interject here a little bit and give a quick shout out to my mentor at Baylor, Dr. Christy Ballantyne, who actually led a few of the clinical trials that got Kispen Ethel approved for treating high triglycerides. Thanks, Bing. Yeah, Dr. Ballantyne, a true prevention legend. Now that we're on the topic of hypertriglyceridemia, why don't we discuss a case to kind of put some of what we're talking about into action? So in the Cardio Nerds Clinic, today I'm seeing a 51-year-old woman 
She does not have known ASCVD, but she does have diabetes. Her BMI is 34, we get a lipid panel, and her fasting triglycerides are in the thousands. Now, she likes the occasional chip, queso, margarita combo. You know, we're here in Houston and our hypothetical cardio nurse clinic today. But even after cutting back and getting her A1C under control, her triglycerides are still in the 600s. Now, for this patient, Dr. Shapiro, can you walk us through your approach to hypertrichidocytemia and whether you would consider ethyl in this case? Yeah, that's a great case and one I see frequently. If we take a step back for a second, let's just first define the categories of triglyceride levels. So we define a normal plasma triglyceride level as one that's below 150 milligrams per deciliter. And then moderate hypertriglyceridemia is a triglyceride level of 150 to 499 milligrams per deciliter. And severely elevated triglycerides are defined as greater or equal to 500 milligrams per deciliter. So the patient that you described falls in the severe hypertriglyceridemia category. And this actually has important implications for several reasons. First, when we're talking about moderate hypertriglyceridemia, when triglycerides are between 150 to 499, those triglycerides are carried almost solely in VLDL particles. Whereas in severe hypertriglyceridemia, the triglycerides are carried both in VLDL and chylomicrons. So in patients with triglycerides greater than 500, but we know there's some degree of chylomicronemia. And that's important because we know that while VLDL is believed to be athogenic, similar to LDL, elevated chylomicrons impart different kind of risk. That's the risk of acute pancreatitis. And this risk increases with the degree of elevation of triglycerides, particularly in those who have triglycerides above 500 milligrams per deciliter. So in a patient like yours, we have to be both concerned about ASCVD risk and pancreatitis risk. I would also point out that the categories that I mentioned of triglycerides, we're talking about fasting lipid specimens here. So a fasting specimen of 500 milligrams per deciliter or more, the severe hypertriglyceridemia, is associated with pancreatitis risk, not because we think that a triglyceride level of 600 imports a great risk for pancreatitis, but because we know if somebody's fasting lipid panel shows a triglyceride of 500 or 600 or 700, we know their postprandial triglycerides are going to be well into the thousand range or more. And that's really where the risk of pancreatitis starts to begin. So let's get back to your case. So generally speaking, individuals who have severe hypertriglyceridemia have both environmental and genetic drivers to their triglyceride levels. Unless, of course, we're talking about the uncommon individuals who have the rare monogenic polygenic disorders leading to triglycerides in the several thousand range where there the risk is really related to pancreatitis. But in this more common scenario that you're talking about, the severe hypertriglyceridemia is driven by both environment and genetics. So the first thing we need to do is consider environmental factors or secondary factors, such as the makeup of her diet, alcohol intake, obesity, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, hypothyroidism, chronic kidney disease, or nephrotic syndrome, as well as numerous medications that can exacerbate hypertriglyceridemia. There's many, but some of the most important include oral estrogens, tamoxifen, retinoids, glucocorticoids, and many of the anti-rejection meds that we use for transplant patients like cyclosporin and tacro. Of course, there are many others, including medications we commonly use in cardiology, such as thiazides and beta blockers, but those are associated with generally modest increases in triglycerides. So in this patient that you've described, she has some of these factors. She was obese, she has diabetes, sounds like she has some dietary indiscretion. So unlike LDL cholesterol and HDL cholesterol, which are somewhat more resistant to lifestyle modifications, or I should say generally lifestyle modifications don't result in dramatic changes in their levels, with triglycerides, they are very amenable to lifestyle modifications in terms of improving the diet quality, losing weight, exercising. So with lifestyle modifications, it sounds like she was able to get her triglycerides down from the 1,000 range to the 600 range. You also said that she got her diabetes under good control. And I want to just emphasize that diabetes management is an extremely important part of hypertriglyceridemia management. If somebody has an A1C of 13, the first thing we do isn't necessarily starting triglyceride-reducing drugs. 
you need to get the blood sugar under control and you'll see generally dramatic reductions in triglycerides. So clearly we want to get this lady out of the pancreatitis range. If she's not already on a statin, that should be started given her diabetes and other cardiovascular risk factors. I think many aren't aware that statins are reasonably good triglyceride reducing drugs. And I think that people aren't aware because the statin megatrials enrolled participants with normal triglycerides. But if you look at other data, statins when assessed in patients with hypertrichosemia can actually reduce their levels by about 20 to 30 percent, depending on baseline levels. So if she can continue improving lifestyle and she starts statin, she'll likely get to a triglyceride level below 500. However, we're still not done yet. We need to know her LDL cholesterol. You guys know that when triglycerides are elevated, the Friedwald formula to estimate LDL cholesterol is not accurate. In her, you'd want to look at something else like a direct LDL or non-HDL cholesterol or APRB. And if using one of these metrics of LDL shows that there's not adequate control with statin therapy, she might require the addition of other LDL cholesterol lowering agents. But once her LDL is controlled, she would then likely fit the reduce at trial criteria given her diabetes, then optimally treated LDL cholesterol and statin, and likely residual elevations of triglycerides. It's at that point that we could discuss the use of icosapentethyl with her. Dr. Shapiro, that was a total masterclass on triglycerides. We can just end the series here because that was, that was just an incredible series of comments. And I know I look forward to going back and listening to that again. I just wanted to ask you kind of a side question based on all you said there concerning BLDL, chylomicrons. When we see triglycerides on a lipid panel, what are we really seeing? And what are we seeing there that relates to risk? Are we seeing a proxy for VLDL? What is that really for us? That's a beautiful question, Rick. Yes, you're exactly right. Triglycerides are really a surrogate for something else that we really want to know. They're a surrogate for triglyceride-rich lipoproteins. Those are, of course, ABOB-containing lipoproteins, so they're atherogenic. And there's been a debate for a long time whether it's the triglycerides per se within these triglyceride-rich lipoproteins that are atherogenic or not. A few comments there, which is to say that when you look at plaques, there's no triglycerides there. The you know, arterial wall macrophages, the foam cells, they're metabolizing all the triglycerides, but you, there are cholesterol. <laughs> there is cholesterol in the plaque. Okay, so we know that that's atherogenic. Now, the triglycerides, of course, can certainly promote deleterious effects within the plaque, and certainly they're associated with plaque inflammation. But the triglycerides per se, they're probably not causal directly in atherosclerosis. They are a proxy. They are a surrogate for the triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, again, an APOB-containing lipoprotein. And to the extent that your triglyceride-lowering therapy lowers APOB-containing lipoproteins, we see the concomitant reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Thanks so much. So to get back to icosapenethyl a little bit, can you describe for us briefly, how does this actually lower triglycerides? Is there a particular receptor or some other mechanism being targeted? That's a great question. There's certainly probably multiple mechanisms whereby icosapenethyl lowers triglycerides. Many have been proposed for reduction of circulating triglyceride concentrations. So we know that there's reduced hepatic production of VLDL. There's stimulation of lipoprotein lipase activity. That's the major enzyme found in endothelial cells and skeletal muscle and in fat tissue that liberates triglycerides from the triglyceride-rich lipoproteins. Increased chylomicron clearance, reduced lipogenesis, increased beta-oxidation, reduced delivery of fatty acids to the liver and a relative increase in hepatic phospholipid synthesis. There's probably others, but clearly there's many ways, there's many mechanisms by which EPA lowers triglycerides. So I have a, it's somewhat controversial related question here. 
So Dr. Shapiro, you discussed that elevated triglycerides is certainly a marker for risk. And I do remember in my lipid year that there's a lot of studies that show association between triglycerides and cardiovascular outcome. But then when you adjust for other markers, that risk disappears. But then we have these so-called Mendelian randomization studies that do show that elevated triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, what we call TRLs, are causally related to ASCVD. Now, kind of taking this back to reduce it with all the analysis and sub-analysis from reduce it, and more recently from the strength trial, Dr. Shapiro, do you think that the beneficial effects of acosapen ethyl is purely from triglyceride lowering or are there some other biological effects coming into play and what may they be? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. You know, unfortunately, we can't really infer mechanism for a randomized controlled trial. We really can only say that a certain strategy worked relative to placebo in a certain patient population. So reduce it, the addition of high-dose, highly purified EPA, very significantly improved outcomes in statin-treated patients with ACVD or diabetes. But there are, however, perhaps some clues that suggest that triglycerides are not the whole story here. And in reduce it, the large reductions in the composite primary endpoint actually exceeded what would have been expected from pretty modest decrease in triglyceride levels, 17% decrease. I will say that 17% decrease sounds modest. It's because the median triglyceride level at baseline was 216. And essentially with all triglyceride lowering therapies, we see that the magnitude of triglyceride reductions is contingent on baseline levels. So we're seeing a pretty modest reduction in triglyceride levels because the triglyceride levels in that population weren't that elevated. But as I was saying, reductions in the primary endpoint were much more than we would have expected from this fairly modest reduction in triglyceride levels. And there's several factors here. The benefits of icosapenethyl were independent of baseline triglyceride levels. So it didn't matter if you were on the higher side or on the sort of lower end in the population. These benefits were even observed among the about 10% of participants with normal triglyceride levels. Remember, you needed a triglyceride level above 135. So there were some people between 135 and 150 who essentially had normal triglyceride levels and benefits were still observed in that population. And finally, they were unrelated to the amount of triglyceride lowering. So it really appears that triglycerides are not the whole story here. Now, you had talked about JELUS a little while ago. You know, that was a very large trial, over 18,000 patients, open-label randomized trial. It also used pure EPA, not 2 grams BID, but 1.8 grams per day on top of the statin. And that actually produced a statistically significant 19% reduction in a composite of cardiovascular events compared with statin alone. That study population included patients, again, both primary and secondary prevention. And there, the median plasma triglyceride level at baseline was even lower. It was 153 milligrams per deciliter, almost normal. If that's the median, half the population of normal triglycerides. And the overall triglyceride reduction was even more modest, again, because the baseline level was so close to normal. They only saw a 9% reduction in triglycerides in that study. And specifically, in one of the post hoc analysis, where they looked at individuals where triglyceride levels were above 150 and HDLs were less than 40, they were able to demonstrate a 53% reduction in events with EPA. But importantly, there were Again, there was no relationship between the extent of triglyceride lowering and cardiovascular events. So I think your point is that EPA has demonstrated myriad pleiotropic effects. And I want to talk about that in some detail. EPA, first of all, is an enzymatic precursor for eicosanoids, specifically thromboxane A3 and prostaglandin I3, which have neutral and inhibitory effects on platelet aggregation, respectively. Both of these eicosanoids appear to be produced in subjects who consume at least four grams of EPA daily. So in individuals who are getting that dose of EPA would tend to have inhibitory effects on platelets, an antiplatelet agent, essentially. And individuals, again, who ingest four grams or more of EPA 
also have lower thrombocytic NA2 synthesis and increased buffed glandin I2 synthesis, further augmenting the inhibitor effect on platelets. But there's other potentially beneficial effects of omega-3 fatty acids, and those are favorable effects on blood pressure, favorable effects on endothelial function and atherosclerotic plaque, as well as beneficial effects on insulin resistance and inflammation. And as we talked about earlier, there appear to be important differences among omega-3 fatty acids that may favor EPA over DHA with respect to plaque stabilization. As we discussed, EPA inhibits cholesterol crystal formation, stabilizes membrane structure, reverses endothelial dysfunction, and produces sustained inhibition of lipid oxidation. So as you can see, there's really no single unifying explanation for the potential benefits of omega-3 fatty acids on cardiovascular disease, but I think it's probably pretty clear that it's not all related to triglyceride reduction. Dr. Shapiro, thank you for going through that description of all the pleiotropic effects that EPA can have. And I think we try to put things in boxes, but it's important to know that mechanisms are complicated and the mechanisms of these molecules are still being elucidated. These pleiotropic effects can be beneficial or detrimental. And one of the things that we've seen in reduce it in strength, in addition to all the triglyceride lowering that we saw in reduce it, was that there is an increase in atrial fibrillation among the omega-3 treatment arm, especially when you compare it to placebo. And this has been borne out as well in meta-analyses of the cardiovascular outcomes trials looking at these molecules. There's also been some evidence that these molecules also have an increased risk towards bleeding and peripheral edema. And again, as these molecules and all of these medications become more prevalent, I wonder, Dr. Shapiro, how you weigh these side effects for icosapenethyl against the benefits when you're prescribing the medication? Are there certain patients you would be particularly wary to write for icosapenethyl in for this reason? And how do you counsel your patients disregard yeah, those are good points, Sammy. Personally, I'm not particularly concerned about the side effects of icosapenethyl. I mean, I'd be happy if all the medications we used in cardiovascular medicine were as safe as icosapenethyl. But let's just go through some of the side effects that you mentioned. I think everybody, when you start talking about fish oil, becomes worried about bleeding risk. So we'll start there. In reduce it, the rates of serious bleeding events, including hemorrhagic stroke or other CNS bleeding, GI bleeding, that actually was not increased in the icosapenethyl group. In those who got EPA, the incidence was 2.7% versus 2.1% in placebo. That was not statistically significant. But when they considered minor bleeding as well, so if you looked at all bleeding treatment emergent adverse events, they were significantly increased with icosapenethyl. So the minor bleeding was driving that. So there, there was a statistically significant difference with more minor bleeding with icosapenethyl. You'd also mentioned the peripheral edema. That was, again, numerically greater and statistically significant in the EPA group. It was more common with icosapenethyl. Again, I'm not too concerned about peripheral edema. The one that gets my attention the most, and I think this is where you were going with this, Tommy, is the AFib business, because this is a signal that we've seen with fish oils before. It reduced it. The rate of hospitalization for AFib or a flutter was significantly higher for icosapenethyl. It was an absolute risk increase of 1%. It was 3.1% in EPA versus 2.1% in placebo. That was statistically significant. Fortunately, there was no increased risk of stroke in the trial. But the AFib signal is real, and it's plagued most of the fish oil trials. Whereas we generally think of omega-3s as antiarrhythmic, and they certainly are with respect to ventricular arrhythmias, they do seem to be associated with a small but real increased risk of AFib, but probably not enough to stop me from using it in an appropriate patient because the risk reduction was quite large. Thank you, Dr. Shapiro. So I have another question for you here. So I've actually tried to prescribe uh, cosepin ethyl in my clinic, especially in the high-risk ASCVD patients. But sometimes I do find that insurance companies have some pushback for this particular medication. This kind of reminds me of the issue that we had with PCSK9 inhibitors when I first came out with insurance balking at the cost. 
So Dr. Shapiro, my question is, have you had any of these issues with insurance denying coverage? And if so, can you advise us as clinicians how we should approach this, especially for patients who truly need that extra risk reduction? Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked this question. And I think residents and fellows need to be more aware and more involved in the discussion around out-of-pocket costs for patients. This is an extremely important point. And cost needs to be central in the shared decision-making conversation with patients. So since you mentioned PCSK9 inhibitors, let me take you back to the early days with PCSK9s. You know, there was really a buzz amongst all of us interested in lipids, particularly for those of us who take care of patients with inherited dyslipidemias like familial hypercholesterolemia. I remember my colleagues and I making lists of patients that we were planning on prescribing a PCSK9 inhibitor as soon as they became approved by the FDA. We all did it. And unfortunately, we all had our enthusiasm crushed when we had our first prior authorizations denied, even upon appeal. Our group pivoted quickly. We set out to determine the common themes that emerged from the denials we received from the payers. And once we knew the pieces of information that the payers needed, we put together a structured program, which at the time we called the PCSK9 inhibitor clinic. Basically, we created structured documentation in the EMR. That program was run by an APP and a clinical pharmacist. And long story short, we got our prior authorization approval to 97% and cut the time down of approval from a couple of months to a couple of weeks and brought the patient out of pocket cost way down. So we'd actually published our experience in a series of papers and groups around the country sort of adopted this model. And I mentioned this because this model is compatible for use really with any expensive medication that is restricted by payers. And I've taken this model to my card center and we use it for the full range of preventive therapies, including ethyl. So the key really is to have a clinical pharmacist on your team. And even if you don't have a dedicated clinical pharmacist and a dedicated preventive cardiology program, all healthcare systems have wonderful PharmDs and they're extremely important, valued member of the team. And I certainly couldn't do my job without their help. Now, how about the cost of the healthcare system? This is a new medication. It's fairly expensive. There's been several studies out showing that a pretty significant number of patients overall are going to be eligible to start this drug based on reduced inclusion criteria. Now, I know ICER came out with a cost-effective analysis showing that ethyl is cost-effective for ASCVD risk reduction. But Dr. Shapiro, how do we balance the cost-effectiveness for the entire health system with the desire to really treat individual patient and really get the best outcome for individuals? Yeah, this one's a slam dunk. I mean, I'm glad we're talking about this at least relative to Icosapent ethyl because for many other medications we use, it's a much more challenging conversation. With Icosapent ethyl, it's quite straightforward. I think you're referring to a publication that appeared in Jack last year, which provided a formal evaluation of the patient level cost effectiveness of U.S. subjects using the reduced data. Overall, ethyl was found to provide better outcomes at lower costs. That means in the overall reduced population, the use of ethyl would actually lower costs for healthcare system. It would actually be cost savings. So even in the primary prevention population, in this case, we're talking about diabetics without cardiovascular disease, the incremental cost-effective ratio was $36,000 per quality-adjusted life years per quality gate. And so to put this in perspective, you know, an ICER under 50K is considered to be an approach that is of high value, highly cost-effective. So for ethyl, there's fortunately no controversy about the cost-effectiveness. It would be more cost-effective if we actually took population health-based approaches. In other words, used EHRs to identify individuals who would meet the reducing criteria so that we could implement this in that population. That's how you're ultimately going to save costs because of all the cardiovascular events that you prevent. Dr. Shapiro, that's been such an incredible overview and so many parts of this discussion that I know I'm going to take away to my clinical practice and really looking forward to sharing with listeners. 
to kind of take this conversation home a little bit, I'm hoping to get your thoughts on what's the future for Icos Benethyl? Where do we go from here? And really, being such an expert in the field, what are some of the therapeutics or upcoming developments that you're most excited about in cardiovascular prevention general? Sure. That's a big one. We'll start with the future of Icosapenethyl. Just take a step back, because I don't think we talked about strength, at least today, very much. Just for review for the listeners, strength was another randomized controlled trial. The design was very similar to Reduce It. Unlike Reduce It, which used a pure EPA agent, the strength tested a high dose, like at four grams per day, but combination EPA DHA product in strength was terminated early at a planned interim analysis. since there was really no signal of benefit with the combination EPA DHA strategy. So if we look at the history of omega-3 trials total, I think a couple of themes emerge. There's, first of all, no benefit to low dose, meaning one gram daily of omega-3s. There also appears to be no benefit to high dose combination EPA DHA. When we're talking about EPA alone, at a dose starting at two grams daily, there was benefit in Jealous. And of course, most recently, there was a benefit from four grams daily of pure EPA and reduce it. So I do think we have greater clarity with regards to dose and which constituent omega-3 polyunsaturated fat is important. In terms of the future, though, what I'd love to see, though it's never going to happen, is a trial that randomizes patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and or diabetes who are on statins and well-controlled LDL to a high-dose EPA versus placebo with no requirement for elevated triglycerides. And as we discussed, baseline and on-treatment triglycerides did not relate to improvement in cardiovascular outcomes and reduce it or adults. As we discussed quite a bit, the benefit of high-dose EPA may have little to do with its impact on triglycerides. I think it would take that type of trial design to answer that question. Dr. Shapiro, thank you so much for such an in-depth discussion on acosapenethyl, triglycerides, trial design. This was very, very informative. So I guess we're coming on to the end of this talk. I have one more question for you, sir. What is your favorite part about cardiovascular prevention since you're such an expert in the field? That is perhaps my favorite question of the evening, <laughs> or perhaps the most exciting time ever in preventive cardiology. We now have a large array of new therapeutic tools and approaches, and in fact, many more in the pipeline to effectively mitigate multiple dimensions of residual risk. Beyond new tools, we have completely new modalities. We're well beyond small molecules at this point. We have therapeutic monoclonal antibodies, antisense oligonucleotides, a small interfering RNA and glycerin which I'm sure you guys have heard about. And glycerin, in fact, will allow us to lower LDL to an extent similar to the PCSK9 inhibitors, but with uh, sub-Q injections that only need to be administered twice a year. You've probably already heard about the exciting work going on with CRISPR-based technologies as well, and that's already demonstrated remarkable success in non-human private models. So we could potentially be looking at the cure for cardiac disease in the next decade or two. That's what really gets me excited. But besides new therapeutic tools, there's also a lot of exciting developments in diagnostics, risk assessment. So CAC scoring, coronary calcium, has now become mainstream in a large proportion of primary prevention. I think there's still a lot of work to be done there in terms of implementation and reimbursement. But beyond CAC scoring, I think the near future will really usher in a CTA, a coronary CTA-based approach to risk assessment and personalized treatment. Coronary CTA allows us to stage, classify, and ultimately track disease. We've been wanting to track disease for a long time, but attempting to track disease with CAC is fraught with hazard. CTA overcomes this barrier and uh, would potentially allow us to truly tailor our treatment approach iteratively in each patient. So if you think about it, the oncologists have been doing this for years. Through a variety of biomarkers, genetics, histopath, and imaging, they stage and classify the cancer, and then they personalize their treatment to the actual disease. But they don't just stop there and say good luck. 
They track disease with imaging to assess response, which then allows them to reiterate on therapeutic approaches needed. This paradigm has led to improved outcomes for several cancers, and I think this is what we really need to be doing in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. We need to image, preferably at a time when patients do not have overt coronary disease. And then once we stage and classify the burden of athro, then this needs to be tied to a set of recommendations for lifestyle and medical therapy. And the stage of disease needs to inform a rescanning interval such that we can track disease and assess response to our therapies. Of course, all of this needs to be validated in the context of an RCT, but this potential approach gets me really, really excited. So guys, what do you think? Do you want to join me in prevention of cardiovascular disease? Dr. Shapiro, I couldn't imagine a more noble goal and a better leader than yourself to help us move in this field. And I just want to thank you and I want to thank Ming for being such a crucial part of this episode. And I really couldn't imagine a better way to end our triglyceride series in this discussion, talking about the future of the field and all the different ways that we can help people going forward. It's just, it's invigorating and exciting. And like I said, I just can't thank you guys enough for being a part of the episode today. Thanks so much, guys. Really enjoyed the conversation. And you guys are doing a tremendous job with this Cardio Nerds podcast series. Keep up the great work.